The Power Connect podcast is brought to you by InnoWatts and their upcoming webinar, Finding a Rhythm, Forecasting and Innovating in a Renewable Age, on November 10th. Really excites me where I can, you know, go to my favorite shop and say, this is great. We, you know, my company partnered with this fashion company and and they are actually being responsible. Actually, ultimately, that would probably be one of the most satisfying thing for me if I can take my kids and show them, look at this, my company is helping to make this product better and cleaner. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode 47 of the program rolls along on Halloween. Listen, folks, we told you last week we might do a Halloween episode. And what exactly does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. We're doing an episode on Halloween. That's exactly what it means. Let's not get too serious about it. Let's not overthink it. And I'll tell you what, nothing spooky about uh, the young lady that we've got on today, Miss Andreka Bernatova. I'll tell you what, when it comes down to a hard-charging woman who has a take-no-prisoners attitude, then I'll tell you what, Andreka Bernatova and this episode is right up your alley, all right? Because that's exactly what Andreka Bernatova is all about. What an excellent conversation Miss Bernatova and I had uh, about a week or so ago. We had a lot of fun chit-chatting, and of course, uh, she clowned me on more than one occasion in this interview, which I'd never had a guest uh, accost me in the way that Miss Bernatova did, but again, it was all in good fun. She's got an amazing story and what she's done in the energy space and what she continues to do with her most recent endeavor, the SPAC S-Gen, and what they're uh, working on in the clean tech space. I'm going to let her tell you about that, and again, it was just a great conversation that we had, but like I said, we'll hear from her in just a second. But before we do, let's hear from our podcast partner, InnoWatch. Look, as we creep into the winter months with global instability and election outcomes affecting power markets, forecasting accuracy is paramount. So what resources are available? How do you find them? And what should you do about it? Well, learn more about it. Join InnoWatch and Rhythm Energy on Thursday, November 10th for a must-listen, attend, see, webinar, whatever you do to get there. The webinar is called Finding a Rhythm, Forecasting and Innovating in the Renewable Age. Join Inawatts's own Chief Innovation Officer, Krishnan Kasivi Swanathan, and Rhythm's own Head of Portfolio, Ruzbe Amirazodi, as they discuss how to gain an edge this winter, the impact of renewables, customer activism, and why innovation is vital to survival in the retail, energy, and utility spaces. The 45-minute webinar will be interactive as they'll field questions from the audience, so come ready to listen, engage, and learn from two veterans of the retail space. Go to InnoWatch.com for more information or connect with and sign up through the InnoWatch LinkedIn page. All right, let's get down to it. Today's episode, Miss Andreka Bernatova, CEO, founder of the SPAC S-Gen. They're looking for all things clean tech and uh, they're looking high, low, left, right, you name it. And she's done an absolutely incredible job of scouring the country. Uh, I'll let her tell it uh, herself. Also too, we dive into a number of topics, how she came to this country when she was a teenager with $100 in a dream. Yes, it sounds like a movie, but no, this is real life. Uh, kind of how, and, and of course, the funny part is she tells how Dallas, who shot JR, one of the more pivotal moments in her life, and she wasn't kidding. She'll also get into a little bit about why she's always made deliberate choices and deliberate decisions throughout her career, how her first two years out of college at Credit Suisse really laid the foundation for how she has conducted her career and continue to impact her today. She also gets into what the role of oil and gas is in the energy transition 
And we also get into a little bit about how her experience in Abu Dhabi helped shape what she's doing in the energy transition as well. So again, it's just, a, like I said, I, I, it was a lot of fun. Andreka is an absolutely phenomenal human being, and I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. And I think you will certainly gain a lot from this as well. So without further ado, here is CEO of SGen Miss Andreka Bernatova. Yes, very true. I actually, looking back, I don't know how I did it. Honestly, I don't think I could do it again at my age of 29 now. But I, you know, I grew up in a, a sort of under the iron curtain for about a decade, and uh, then uh, when the borders opened, right, and we we were not able to travel anywhere. So you could go sort of to the Eastern Bloc, but you couldn't go to Austria, Germany, obviously not America. So. The borders open, and um, I uh, just uh, when I was walking back from school. I'm from deep countryside, actually, in the Czech Republic, from a very small village. And as I was walking home from school, I see a, a poster advertising study abroad in, in America with sort of a you know a lady running on the beach and uh, and the twin towers. And I just essentially visualized myself being in the U.S. So you know, one of the best lessons in life, and and I, I actually credit uh, that exercise to uh, you know a lot of the things I'm doing today is I came home and I told my dad I want to come to the US and he said you have to actually that's fine you know he they gave me the freedom to go no uh, but they said you have to raise your own uh, money and so it was six thousand dollars at that point was probably my parents you know decade of earnings combined so I went and uh, in post-communist Czechoslovakia, I was basically uh, asking s very small businessmen for uh, donations. And, and this is a concept that's very, you know, well uh, received in the U.S. This was, you know, we didn't know what donations was. Like, you, you, know. you, you did a uh, real-life GoFundMe is what you're saying. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's so true. That's so true. But people who don't understand the GoFundMe concept, right, at all. So, so I kind of showed up and I said, give me 50 bucks. I, I have a dream to go to America. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it was probably saw 200 people in the span of you know eight months and raised the capital or the, you know the financing back then and uh, it was the the hardest fundraise I've ever done in my life you know you go in front of these sort of post-communist small businessmen and uh, have really nothing to offer except for you know fund my dream to go to the US so it's true um, you know one of the most life-defining moments was actually raising that capital I'm not afraid to go in front of anyone and you know, make an outbound call and, and make a fool of myself. And I came to the U.S. I had a vision to be in New York or California or, you know, Florida, some sort of nice uh, place. And I ended up in the woods of New Hampshire. Uh, is isn't that bad. It was, it was fantastic. In fact, I just saw, you know, part of my host family. I still stay in touch with the family okay. that I stayed with. I was an exchange student. Um, they transformed my life. Uh, they are my family to this date. You know, they basically, I came as a girl who, you know, uh, sort of had kind of doubts, right? 15 year old who had doubts about herself. And they basically said, you know, they called me Andrea. I said, Andrea, you can do anything you want. You want to be president of this country. You change the constitution and you can be the president. Like nothing, you know. And so very, just a very can-do attitude. Um, and it to totally changed me for, for the rest of my life. How much English did you know when you got Nothing. here? Nothing. None. Very little. And very so little. I, I still speak very little, so it hasn't improved uh, <laughs> much over the past 25 years. But well, Did your host family speak Czech? Or? No, no Czech. You so know, the, it was just, uh, how did y'all communicate? You know, I had a little, obviously I had a traditional dictionary. Um, and then I had actually a little electronic dictionary where I would like, just look up words. I, I couldn't understand anything at school. And, you know, by the end of the time, I was a, a, a very 
you know, a well-received student, I think, by the end of the year. But it was just a... I, I actually do not remember many of the things that I did during that year because I was in a state of shock, essentially, sure. the whole year. Were there any... You know, and I always hear this from folks who come uh, from other countries and, you know, migrate to the United States, that there are certain TV shows, movies, and or music that, you know, helps them learn English or that they kind of, you know, get a hold of it. Was there anything back then that you picked up on? Because uh, this would have been the 90s, so you know it was a happening time back then. We so so you know it was it was sort of interesting because in the 80s you know we couldn't watch any Western shows right in Czechoslovakia you just saw kind of the, the Eastern shows so East European shows so um, so we didn't have any exposure to English you know for the first decade of my life. Then when I came here, actually the one of the most defining uh, series. Uh, actually, just before I came to the US was Dallas series. Uh, so I think one of your first questions, Fred, that you outlined there uh, was, you know, how how was your finance and energy views shaped by your Czech upbringing? And my answer is, uh, you know, I went from picking potatoes, I'm not joking, to uh, watching the Dallas series. So I know I probably watched every episode, you know, five times. Were you as riveted as the rest of the world as to who shot JR? Yes, yes, yes. That was that was actually one of the most memorable moments of my entire life. I'm not exaggerating. And when I actually moved to Houston, Texas, the first trip that I made with my family when they came to visit was to visit the South, I call it South Fork because I was not able to pronounce it correctly, so I still mispronounce it. But we went actually to visit the, the, the ranch of the Ewings. That's fantastic. That is incredible. So you've got, you know, so Dallas and, uh, of course, you know, for all the Houstonites here, they, uh, you know, they may cringe a little bit because, of course, you can't be from Texas and not appreciate the show Dallas. Uh, it is an American institution. So um, you get to the United States. You kick ass and take names over in New Hampshire. God bless New Hampshire. I bought one of my first cars in Manchester. And then you just happen to find your way a little further south to Harvard. I mean, I'm sure a few folks have uh, listened to this program have heard of that school. Kick ass and take names there. A little bit about that uh, experience. Obviously, your, your intelligence and what your, your persistence and dedication go, is without saying. What did you want to do? Did you already have an idea? And kind of what was that? You know, how did that sort of experience kind of craft itself to where, okay, I know I'm good with numbers and or fundraising because, hell, I fundraised myself to get over here. Tell us a little bit about that journey and how you ended up in the roles you did early on. Loved my time at Harvard, and it, it really exposed me to, you know, many different subjects. So I never was, you know, focused when, you know, when somebody wants to be an engineer or a doctor, you kind of know early on that you want to do that, and it's in some ways easier. You know, when I when I was my, actually junior at Harvard, I was working at the World Bank at that time, and I had uh, many friends in New York at that time doing interests at banks, and I thought, oh, gosh, I should I should really do something where I can actually have a solid toolkit because you know I was reading I, was, I studied government at Harvard so I was reading you know all sorts of different books and philosophers and you know history etc but I really didn't have a, a, a skill set and so I decided I basically uh, my mission my senior year at Harvard was I want to end up in the toughest place I possibly can to learn something, and that's something that I picked was finance, you know, because it was sort of easy, a lot of uh, folks are recruiting. Um, and so I, I recruited, uh, ended up being actually at Credit Suisse. I basically wanted to be with the smartest and the most hardworking people. And I actually remember Credit Suisse had this, uh, you are not placed into a specific investment banking group. 
you sort of spend the two months of your analyst training in, in interviewing with different groups. And so my question was, and I, I knew nothing about finance. I never opened a spreadsheet until the first day of training, tra uh, uh, you know, uh, analyst training. I never had people around me who could educate me about finance. And so um, I, the question I asked was, what is the most hardcore group that I can possibly be in? And the answer was mergers and acquisitions. And so that's what I went for. I think to this date, those, those guys who interviewed me to be in that group were just puzzled because you know, they would say, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, this is incredibly tough. You will never sleep. It's going to be the worst thing you'll do in your life. And I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. That's exactly what I'm going for. And so uh, I ended up being placed in that group. Uh, it was the hardest two years of my entire life. I mean, I basically worked 18, 20 plus hours every single day, including weekends. You know, no time off. It's obviously extremely challenging, fast-paced environment doing, you know, large cross-border deals uh, around the globe, uh, across different industries. You know, the, the toughest guys I've probably worked with in my life. So, but it, it was the most, it was probably more, it was the most life-defining experience for me because it taught me unbelievable discipline to this date. You know, it sort of is, is lagging. As you get older, you probably become less and less disciplined. But I still, you know, uh, I just, I mean, I feel I'm an incredible disciplined person, you know, attention to detail, just being able to take a lot of different information and, 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 and you know, sort of package it and dissect it and make something out of it and just working with really smart people. I mean, um, smart guys, but not only that, it's, they were extremely hardworking too. I mean, they just hassled, you know, just just never gave up. And so those two years were just, just set me up for my entire career. I, I continue to believe that. Was there ever a time that you questioned what you were doing and wondered, okay, is this really the place I want to be? And then I'm guessing if you didn't say that, what was kind of the next thought process is, all right, where are we going next? Because now that I have this understanding, this experience, there's really nothing I can't do. Every single day I questioned that. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I remember my parents are still in the Czech Republic. They were there at that time, too. And I remember calling them at, you know, 4 a.m. when I was just waiting for books to get printed. And, you know, it was uh, 10 a.m. their time. And my mom uh, would ask me, you know, why, why I thought if, if you go to Harvard, then you have a good life afterwards. You know, and it was just a, an awful experience. But I, I don't mean it in a bad, I mean, it really, like, it, it, I, I, it was incredibly positive for the rest of my life. But living through this on a daily basis, yeah. every single minute of the day, I was doubting that. And so, and, and also, you know, partially, Fred, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I used to be sort of the, the math and chemistry and physics kind of, you know, the, the Czech Olympiads winner and all that. So I was a quantitative person early on in my life. But then later on, I... I kind of switched to be more a liberal arts person. And so when I started at Credit Suisse, I wasn't necessarily like, you know, a, a great analyst at all. Like I, I didn't have that financial sort of acumen and backbone that the guys from, you know, UT or, or Wharton have, to be honest. So uh, it was it was really a, a, just challenging across the board. But, um, you know, I am a, I've always been a sort of a long distance runner. You know, I'm, I was brought up in an environment where you just, you know, I didn't have choices, right? So if I quit, what's my alternative? I can't call anyone to say, 
hey, can you pay my credit card? Can you pay my phone bill? Can you pay my rent? You know, uh, it's actually the contrary. And um, so sometimes not having choices and just having to, you know, stick with it is the best thing that can happen to you. So that is basically, you know, what I did. And I said, look, I mean, it was so challenging. I wanted to quit every single day. And I lasted through it. I actually did banking again, you know, a few years later um, after Credit Suisse at Morgan Stanley in Houston. And I'm just not a person who gives up. That's that's one of my, for better or worse, one of my attributes. What's the one kind of thing that you learned, though, about yourself that you still use to this day from that two-year experience? I think, and I didn't necessarily learn it there, but I realized that I have to learn it, is ability to think. I feel that most, I don't want to say most, but a lot of people in life can process they can push things from left to right. They can fill in the blanks. But what it really takes, and, and the sort of more experience I have, the more I see it in, in myself and others, is, is the ability, and, and will, it's not the ability, it's the willingness to actually think through what is the optimal you know, solution. Whether it's soft, how do I deal with you know, a, a diff, different personalities and people who are incentivized by different things, or whether it's, uh, you know, facts-based, right? I mean, uh, uh, science or data can be interpreted in many different ways, right? So, and most people just kind of fill in the blanks and don't think through stuff. So that's, and that's one thing I, I absolutely appreciate in others is, you know, not paper pushers, but people who actually uh, think. It's very hard to find. Um, so that's, that's what I learned. What was it about energy? Because, again, you were doing this in, what, the early two, 2010s, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, when you decided to mm -hmm. make that plunge. What was it about oil and gas? And I know you, you've answered this before, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there again anyway. You know, going from, you know, numbers to dealing with people. You know, there were several sort of times in my career where I actually took deliberate moves. So you can take two approaches in your career, right? You can just sort of go with the flow, uh, you know, recruiter calls you, hey, there's an opportunity, and you kind of go for it. Oh, okay, two years later, there's another one, you kind of go for it. And, you know, 10 years later, you realize, actually, I'm not an expert in anything, right? So I'm, I'm kind of not charting my own path. I'm increasing my salary and positions, but it's kind of, what is that for? So I, you know, the, the sort of second big deliberate step that I took was actually focus on energy. Uh, so oil and gas and infrastructure. And uh, I was actually in Abu Dhabi at that point, investing in solar and wind. In fact, this was, you know, 2009 to 11 timeframe. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I was based there, obviously, oil and gas, one of the oil and gas capitals of the world, Abu Dhabi. And I was ironically doing renewables there. And, and I took a step back. You know, I probably had, so what, uh, a little bit more than a decade of my experience back then, or a decade of experience. And I said, you know, I have a good finance toolkit, but I don't want to be a finance person. I want to have uh, industry expertise. And I touched on energy every single step of the way. So, you know, Credit Suisse actually ended up doing a lot of deals for power and oil and gas. Then when I was at Blackstone, a lot of the exposure, I was investing in emerging markets. As you can imagine, most of emerging markets is, you know, natural resources oriented. At Mubadala, obviously, when I was in Abu Dhabi, again, I, I touched on, you know, energy via uh, renewables and and some you know other natural resources deals, and so I thought you know I should really solidify that, and and if you wanted you know at that time if you wanted to do oil and gas or energy and infrastructure and wanted to be in the middle of 
sort of, you know, where it's happening, you had to be in London or you had to be in Houston. So, you know, I decided to go to Houston just because, you know, I, I consider U.S. my home. And um, and it's been a, you know, I came and I really didn't know anyone in Houston. It was a, a really rewarding experience. And I'm kind of an odd, odd person here in this, you know, certainly at that point in oil and gas business. And actually the fact that I was different, that I didn't necessarily grow up here or, or Midland or Oklahoma, you know, that, that differentiating factor, you know, people remembered me. You know, I was that person with a different accent. And uh, it was an incredibly welcoming uh, community, to be honest. So uh, what I realized and what I really thrived on in oil and gas was an extremely entrepreneurial spirit, really incredible risk-taking, you know, opportunities, incredible uh, know-how how how to build businesses. And by the way, incredible resilience, right? So what I really like about uh, Texas and oil and gas and was uh, actually one of my advisors told me once you know the so it hit me sort of in that point is this industry you know if you fail people are not going to sort of point at you and say oh yeah that's that's the person who failed look at you know never nobody's going to ever talk to you it's oh you failed okay so what's next right so it so that gives you just an incredible freedom to say you know what if I don't do something right or if things turn against me market turns against me or you know things don't work out the way I think I'll fail but I'll rebuild. It's, it's a really unique, I think, um, you know, characteristics of, of the industry and, 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 you know, Texas specifically, I think, that really was just, you know, really was sort of in line with my personality, to be honest. So very welcoming, you know, community for, for me, even though I was so different, uh, very can-do attitude, very entrepreneurial, just risk takers who are not, you know, not afraid to sort of fail and start again. Characterize your work, characterize kind of that experience from Abu Dhabi in renewables in a oil and gas state and how that kind of has parlayed itself to what you're doing today here in H-Town. Yeah, you're actually right, Fred. I mean, in Abu Dhabi, you know, and I was uh, working with Mubadala and their subsidiaries, Mazdar, uh, that's focused solely on clean energy. And, and essentially they're, you know, they, they actually have, have, uh, have been very thoughtful in terms of saying we are the energy capital today. But they realize that th- there is going to be constraint, whether it's 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, right? But it will come. And so how do we essentially secure the you know, energy leadership for generations to come? They have, you know, they have, they have the benefits of smaller countries, so they can sort of plan better, et cetera. So they've been actually very thoughtful about that. And it was, it was, uh, it was really um, you know, satisfying to be sort of part of that effort and building that effort in Abu Dhabi. Oil and gas, so I really have a lot of admiration for the business. I, I think there are a lot of interesting phenomena. So let me take a step back. You know, I spent a decade, let's say, in oil and gas, and I actually it was a, from midstream, like you said. I mean, I did upstream, midstream services, and investment bankers, so got sort of the whole you know, uh, overview of the entire sector. Then I went into midstream, you know, built a company, we took it public, ended up with a successful sale to, to energy transfer. And then I also was a CFO at a water midstream company, so, you know, subsector of midstream, if you will. And then I uh, ended up also, you know, most recently before my latest gig, uh, a CFO at a grid operator. So I would say that I have a very diverse, you know, energy and infrastructure <laughs> experience. And, you know, and to be honest, for, you know, for, for some time, b- having a diverse toolkit was ne- not necessarily beneficial, right? So it was upstream guys. I'm just upstream guy. I understand, you know, upstream, that was kind of 
the the people who thrived, right? Yeah. Rightfully so, because you needed a very uh, sort of discreet expertise. And it wasn't until three years ago when I actually decided to, and again, that was a, another third deliberate sort of decision in my career was I took a step back. I went to talk to probably 80 investors in the span of three months, just from a personal perspective, you know, the guys I've known for 15 plus years in some cases. And I asked, you know, from... from you talked to 80 different people? Uh, investors, yeah. Invest okay. Different investor houses, yeah. Okay. And, and just about what? Like make your next career move or what? So saying, hey, hey guys, you know, what's what do you think about energy? What do you think about infrastructure? Okay. What do you think about oil and gas? What do you think about clean? You know, saying, I, I don't want a job. I don't want to roll. In fact, I don't know what I'm going to do. they were willing to talk to you. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and, and by the way, when you are not representing a company... They also tell you, you know, because when you are at a company, they will tell you, you know, this, this sector is great. We think it's a great sector. Right? So nobody really will tell you the truth until you are sort of an independent okay. person. So I went there, you know, again, very deliberate moves and said, what, what do you think? What do you think from a, and I gave them a time frame, right? So if you are planning to sort of be active in, in your career for the next five years, makes a big difference what you're going to be choosing versus if you are planning to be active for the next two or three decades, which is, you know, my case. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, and at that time, it was public guys, private guys, you know, hedge funds, dead guys. I mean, um, you know, big, small, you know, London, San Francisco, Dallas, New York, Houston, obviously. And I, I just couldn't see anyone being, you know, jumping up and down about, you know, oil and gas over long term. Right. right. Over decades. So I'm concerned my, my you know, I'm, I'm hoping my career is going to peak in 10 years. Just have that mindset. Right. When I was asking that question. And and so I actually made a, a step into a direction of, you know, I think that there will be some interesting moves in transition energy. And so made just series of deliberate steps to kind of go on the other side. And, and I got particularly excited because as, I, as I've been watching the companies over the past, you know, three years, the know-how and the applicability of the oil and gas toolkit is, you know, from my perspective, incredible. What is oil and gas's role in this energy transition? And tell us a little bit about who is ESGEN. ESGEN is a, is a platform. It's, it's actually a SPAC that I raised uh, last year this time. So we're looking at uh, potential acquisition targets in the public arena. And we're also looking at a number of uh, different private investments. Uh, across energy transitions, so from uh, anything around the grid and um, distributed energy and efficiency to decarbonized chemicals to batteries, you know, to recycling, obviously carbon capture and hydrogen. So um, very wide uh, sort of net of companies. We've spoken to about 400 companies over the past year, and it's been incredibly interesting, you know, to see the space that's very uh, pretty wide. You know, some companies are more sort of software heavy. The others are more capital heavy. You know, again, similar, frankly, to what's, you know, what's oil and gas, right? You have the, the full spectrum. And, I, and I, I did that, again, deliberately because I wanted to see what is out there, right? Because if I don't know a, a very wide spectrum of companies and if I don't have the ability to watch them for a period of time, I then don't know what's a good or bad company. And so it's been actually fascinating to watch the space, you know, obviously with, with SGEN over the past year and even prior for the past three years, you know, to, to see companies, frankly, I compare it to, you know, for oil and gas people to Permian in 20, 
10, 11, 12, right? Where you had a sort of very early commerce and um, you know the capital wasn't necessarily there and then you, you started to have capital flowing into the space and you started to obviously you, you know, uh, see the Permian being the most prolific basin in the US. And, th and very similar things are happening in transition energy. So you're seeing companies who were ideas three years ago, you know, just like companies in the Permian in, in 2011, and uh, now you're seeing, you know, they've grown, they've, they've acquired some initial small customers, and now they have the Amazon and Microsoft and Walmart and, Dow, you know, industrials as their customers, right? So uh, just incredible. What, what excites me personally is not necessarily the flow of capital into the space, yeah. you know, uh, but what excites me is to actually see on the ground, company by company, they are growing immensely from a commercial perspective. So there's a demand from the, you know, large customers, and that's really driven by the demand of, you know, you and I and and and, and our kids, right? So it's it's really just the the grassroots push to the you know large companies that then are pushing to sign contracts to solve their, you know, carbon issues. Uh, with these new uh, sort of players. And, and by the way, many of those companies, have, they are not, not new players. They've been around for decades, right? They've been building their technology and, and building their processes and building their facilities. It just happens now the stars are sort of you know, aligning and now is the time to, to push transition to the next, next phase. But I would, I, I would politely disagree with you actually, Fred, on, on one point. I don't sure. know if you can Let's disagree uh, with the moderator of the podcast. But of course you can. <laughs> you know, I, I actually think that oil and gas is not the truth only for oil and gas. It's the truth, for, I think, for any industry and, and any individual, right, is, you know, doing a bad job with the narrative. So you know, if things are going well, you don't really see a need to change, right? And things were going well. I mean, we, we did good stuff in oil and gas for, you know, a decade plus, right? I mean, it took a lot of technology, a lot of people, a lot of capital, a lot of, you know, failed things, right, for us to, to achieve where we are. And the fact that we are able to produce so much oil and gas right now here in the U.S. is, 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 is thanks to that, right? We would be in a incredibly worse shape with, you know, uh, the situation, uh, you know, international situation now with Mr. Putin, then, then, then we, you know, then uh, if we wouldn't um, sort of have those shale experiences. So I would say, you know, oil and gas didn't have to change. There wasn't a need to sort of, you know, change. And, and I, I tell you, I mean, I'm actually really incredibly uh, pleased and surprised and again, it goes to the entrepreneurial spirit and ability to change of the oil and gas industry is, is you know, we are seeing incredible moves into, you know, you saw the Arkea deal with RNG, but, you know, into hydrogen, into carbon capture. I mean, I, I'm speaking to many of the, you know, CEOs who are uh, of oil and gas companies, who I think are making incredible progress on the ESG front. I agree. No, no, I, I don't. What I, my, what I mean <laughs> when I say they're contr not controlling the narrative as far as it pertains to the energy transition i mean they, and look i guess part of it the deal is to and look you and i are both in houston so maybe it's a diff when i when i talk to folks outside of renewables in outside of texas because i think huh? renewable look renewable folks and oil and gas folks have a much more harmonious relationship in the lone star state than they do mm -hmm. outside of here mm -hmm. i guess all i'm saying is and i guess when you've got you know billions of dollars it's okay look come at us however you want <laughs> you know we're, we're going to do what we do regardless i guess my thing was 
they they allowed that conversation to take place mm-hmm. and were very rea- you know very re- slow moving in reacting mm-hmm. to it you know because mm-hmm. I mean look people forget BP light source has been doing wind for yeah. 20 plus years right, right? right Shell's been doing electrification over right. in Europe for the last decade plus and I guess that's all look I'm a newspaper guy right I mean that's how I mean look how old I am I'm still <laughs> saying newspapers for guys they might even know what newspapers are uh <laughs> you know and so I guess I'm of the belief that you know, and I look, I did sports radio for over a decade, right? So it's, you know, Monday morning quarterback. That's what we do, right? Yeah. So I'm of that visceral reaction where when people say something, you fire right back, okay? Yeah. And, yeah. and look, maybe that's why I'm in the position I'm in in life. Who knows? But, you know, I guess from that standpoint, look, to your point, look, we can't be, you know, we wouldn't be in the position we are without it. And again, like I said earlier, it's taken a, you know, Russia invading Ukraine for people to say, well, I guess the oil and gas business here in the United States isn't so bad after all. I mean, what yeah. would we do without it, right? Yeah. Because certainly, I mean, look, 30% of Ukraine doesn't have power right now. They're, yeah. sh- they're going through four-hour bla- you know, four blackouts for the conceivable you know, future, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, again, I, I guess I should have clarified that a little bit more. But, look, I, I, look, I love the disagreement. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, look, it, it's, it's, it's the, you know, I feel like half the women I've dated in my life. So, you know, I can certainly appreciate that. But, you know, I appreciate that because I think, and, and, and to your point, and, and what I enjoy about this is that it does kind of help spur conversation because I feel like there's not yes. enough conversation between oil and gas yes. and renewables, right? Like it's yes. not about us versus them. You know what I found very interesting? So it's, it's very interesting to watch sort of the evolution of, you know, this oil and gas camp and this transition energy camp yeah. over the last three years. So, you know, three years ago, I remember being at this, you know, board sort of event and and they were talking about what is this EGS, e- e- e, you know, like and and so it was very new. Right. And, and actually, like the, the entire world made incredible changes and progress towards, you know, uh, ESG solutions um and fast forward actually and, and then you had the wave of you know sort of everyone got excited about transition energy and you know this is the way to go and oil and gas is going to be over in five years kind of you know thing and and then you know it, it, it's what basically happened over the past three years is what happens generally in the american capital you know capitalist economies you overshoot right so you overshoot one way or the other it happens sort of with transition energy everyone thought the solution is going to be here yesterday and it's obviously not going to be here it's going to be a trans- certainly a transition and you know what i've seen though recently that i am very excited about and i actually came from climate week uh, a few weeks ago in new york and i was part of a, a you know one particular round table that i really enjoyed and it was mostly VCs and, um, you know, clean tech companies. And um, there were actually a couple of very large strategics at that table too, as we were discussing. And and I could tell that, and, and I started sort of my, you know, narrative about my background. I, you know, I've spent uh, the last decade in oil and gas. I, I, I'm not hiding this, you know, I'm not hiding anything. Right. It's, uh, you know, you, you do what you did and, and I'm, you know, very proud of that. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But but you know what was the beautiful thing actually, Fred, is when I said I spent you know past decade in oil and gas, and as we kind of went through the discussion and sort of the contribution I had to the conversation, everyone was like, "Can you please give me your business card because we really want to cooperate more with oil and gas, and and it's very hard for us to kind of you know uh, get access to these companies, and you know you have that experience and." 
and you know how to you know work with these companies what's important for them and how we can work together so i am actually super excited about the fact that you don't have these like green people and these fossil fuel people it's it is truly starting to look more like a collaborative exercise what technology and or industry are you most excited about mm -hmm. that you you know again because obviously obviously you're very good at this and so that you've it's kind of piqued your interest after 400 conversation and what's something that has you a little concerned well, that is actually a tough question you know because one of the reasons why we didn't deliberately focus on a specific area of a transition energy is because i think there are a lot of similarities between different sectors right so so just as an example, you know, hydrogen and carbon capture, right? So it's, it's uh, I actually think those are sectors that are going to be just, uh, you know, the oil and gas midstream infrastructure know-how is going to be in incredibly important. And those are going to be the people who are probably going to be, you know, ha uh, sort of spearheading the transition to, to make this a sector at scale. So I, I you know, I, to be honest, before IRA, I wasn't a huge fan of either of those uh, industries. And Obviously, with uh, the tailwind, that's that's the regulatory tailwind. It makes it just very different from you know economics perspective. So I think that those are interesting sectors. I think you know anything around the grid is is incredibly important, right? Because yeah. the electrification of everything has just you know incredible consequences. And so I think anything that optimizes the grid, that that helps to alleviate the pressures on the grid that helps uh, the efficiencies. I'm, I'm very excited about sort of the efficiency sector too. And, you know, to your point, what's what's going on in, uh, you know, Russia and Ukraine, what's it doing to commodity prices? I think, you know, that actually is supercharging the growth to, uh, you know, other solutions because, you know, and I just spent actually a couple of months in, in Europe, you know, from Spain to Poland to, you know, Czech Republic, Austria, et cetera. You know the the issues that needs to be that need to be solved are imminent issues, right? In in five years, the the world will probably look different, right? And so in five years, we don't have to solve anything. We need to solve something now. And so the the moves to being efficient from an energy usage perspective, to be self sufficient, you know, uh, from an individual producer uh, perspective. And and by the way, I grew up in in Czechoslovakia. I was you know, heating uh, uh, with coal and, and nobody wants to go to back to that. I can tell you that. Like people will pay higher prices in Europe so they don't have to use coal and wood because I don't know if any one of you guys have done this, but you kind of go down, you crank the heater at 4 a.m., you smell so bad for the rest of the day, you can't get rid of that smell and you have to go there. You, you stay there for, you know, half an hour until it gets crank cranks up and it's really cold. You know, it's not 30 degrees. I mean, it's like it's like 10 degrees, right? So it's real cold. That's real cold. Nobody wants to go back to that, right? Because lifestyle changed. And nobody wants to go back to Europe where I, growing up, we had sometimes days off because it was all the big black cloud, you know, and, and we couldn't go to school. So, you know, it naturally, that what the situation is happening now, it will need a lot of efficiency and it will need a lot of sort of transition to, you know, uh, solar, wind, and, and batteries, et cetera. So I'm... Very excited about the grid efficiency, anything around the grid. Uh, you know, we've seen, honestly, some super exciting, you know, carbon capture utilization plays. I think those are very interesting. I, I love those ideas. But How I, I would make say... make money, though? Because that seems to be the big hole of blue. Utilization, right? So you actually use the carbon to produce something useful for the world. Okay. Um, and so I, I'm glad you asked that question, Fred, because I would actually spin it the 
a, a different direction. It's not necessarily the sector that excites me the most, but it's the companies that basically are building their businesses around, you know, a this is a company that will sell a product or build an infrastructure that's going to you know help to sell a product that makes money on its own and by the way it's decarbonizing yeah. but but leading with this will decarbonize but lose money is not companies that interest us right so it has to be a sector that that doesn't necessarily heavily you know uh, rely on subsidies or if it does initially that you can see a value creation sound subsidies right i, I was a you know, at Mubadala in 2009 and 10, when, uh, you know, the Germany and Spain took away all the subsidies for solar and wind. And, and that was obviously game changing, right, for a lot of the companies. So I've lived it like that stuff can get removed from day to day. So it's really about then just using CO2 as a feedstock, mm -hmm. right? So that's going to be kind of the play then, right? So you capture it. It's not the actual capturing itself that's the, the money maker. It's the, okay, now we've captured it. Now we're going to sell it to somebody who's going to use it as a feedstock, whether it's fuel, whether it's concrete, whether it's whatever number of, mm -hmm. I'm sure, mm -hmm. you know, t uh, uses you've seen mm -hmm. for it. Um, and I know as our boy Ahmad likes to say, you know, it's the, it's the folks that are catching it, mm -hmm. right. That are capturing it rather. Mm -hmm. And he said, so it's kind of, his idea was like, look, let them kind of do their thing mm -hmm. and, you know, we'll move into different spaces. Is that kind of, I, I think the carbon, I mean, there are many different ways uh, of, from a carbon capture perspective to, to slice the industry. Right. I think ultimately, and that's again, one, 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 uh, sort of macro component that I believe in, you know, ultimately the end uh, customer, whether you are in China or whether you are in, you know, Texas or California, you will demand the cleanest, again, oil and gas is going to be here, right, for the next few decades. So you will actually, you will understand that and you will either demand a clean solution or you will demand a solution that's the, you know, most ESG friendly solution. So, uh, you know, the, the cleanest barrel of oil, basically, right? So how do you do that? You know, it's, it's again, and in, in, in I believe, you know, North America is going to be a big player there is how, how do we so how do we position ourselves in North America to deliver the cleanest barrel of oil and and carbon capture is going to be a big component of that. And so and from an industry, a large industries, right, perspective, the same thing. If you are a big emitter, you know, it, I mean, even I myself, when I go and buy clothes, I'm like, well, this is interesting, you know, like, let, let, let's see if this is sustainable or not, because my kids find it very important. They don't care if there is a Nike or Adidas on that, but they really care whether this is clean and, and nobody was, you know, sort of uh, abused or you know, nothing was, uh, you know, destroyed in the process. And so that's what I think. So, you know, we will focus on. So the, the essentially the cost of extraction is going to be pushed higher because you will be required to deliver the cleanest commodity that you possibly can. You dated yourself a little bit there because, you know, I'm of that age, too, where you look at whether it's a Nike or yeah, Adidas, yeah, yeah. right? So I'm, I'm a Nike guy myself, which I give my kids a hard time about. You know, when you talk about branching into these things from an energy perspective, are you looking at clothing? Are you looking at fashion? Are you looking at other mm -hmm. industries outside of maybe the energy sector that are doing, you know, going mm -hmm. the sustainability route as part of what uh, SGEN's doing? Mm -hmm. So clearly look at me, I don't think I'm a very fashionable person. So I don't think that's a good industry for me to enter. <laughs> but, uh, you know. It's no bare bones when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> you're very utilitarian in your approach. Look, yeah. black, white, you're ready to go. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, look, I'm wearing black and blue for crying out loud. Yeah, no fashion week for you, 
exactly. I don't think I don't think we're qualified to opine on anything that relates to fashion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, big big chain here. I don't I don't know. That's uh, <laughs> fashionable maybe for some people. You know, 30 years ago I think, Fred. But <laughs> yeah. So yes, we are. Okay. And, and the okay. reason is there are. And again, you know, coming from capital heavy and technology heavy industries. Yeah. There are so, and I, I give you an example. So we are looking at, you know, we're working with 10 different companies right now that all have in some way, shape or form have exposure to Amazon, right? From grid to mobility, to efficiency, right? To, to recycling. And so uh, I, I feel that we have a lot of value to add. So, you know, this is how you deal with a very large customer. This is how you can structure contracts. So there's a lot of symbiotic uh, sort of, uh, you know, input that you can have across, you know, many different companies. So, you know, uh, I, I can't necessarily see, you know, being in fashion industry or perfume industry. I don't think that's my arena, but, but, but absolutely there are, you know, from a recycling uh, perspective, for example, there are a lot of opportunities there from sourcing perspective, right? There are a lot of opportunities there. So that's what I actually love about, you know, and I don't want to say transition energy. I want to say sustainability as a whole, is that there are so many small, you know, like small tweaks from our perspective that we can, you know, uh, help companies to implement that are going to be company making or breaking. And, and a lot of the tweaks we've learned over the past decade of succeeding and failing, frankly, in, you know, subset of, of you know, uh, energy space. So, yeah, it, it really excites me where I can, you know, go to my you know, favorite uh, shop and say, this is great. We, you know, my company partnered with this fashion company and, and they are actually being responsible. They, actually, ultimately, that would probably be one of the most satisfying thing for me. If I can take my kids yeah. and show them, look at this, my company is helping to make this product better and yeah. cleaner. That's uh, huge. That's huge. Because like I said, I mean, the one thing, you know, energy, we kind of forget about I me mean, because we don't necessarily see it. We just know we just take it for granted. Hey, the lights flip on, the heat comes on, the AC, we're good. But clothes, I mean, you know, you, that, like you said, it, you look good, you feel good. Mm -hmm. uh, you, 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 don't, you may feel good, but I would, you know, <laughs> you know we need both some fashion advice here. We need some fashion advice. You and I were really starting to, <laughs> look, I, I, I am who I am. My kids, I'm too late. My kids have already made fun of me. I've bought into it. Uh, you know, hey. You're a part of four different boards, obviously one of them being your company, um, S-Gen, but of course, you know, Pickering Energy Partners, VC Fuel, which like I said, we had a chance to talk to Ahmad, mm -hmm. um, and then Salt Creek. What are the, some of the challenges, though, when, when you're on the boards to, you know, whether it's, you know, overlapping ideas or, you know, maybe, because you and VC Fuel do kind of the same thing, mm -hmm. right? And so how do mm -hmm. you kind of, you know... Mm -hmm save the good, you know, because you want to mm -hmm. save the good ideas for you and S-Gen, or do you, mm -hmm. I mean, how does that work exactly? In general, so I'm not sort of a kind of, I want to be on boards because I want to be right. on boards, right? I mean, I can do that when I'm 60. So it's not, you know, that's not not necessarily my priority. The reason why I like my board roles now, Fred, is that it gives me a very unique perspective. You know, Salt Creek is obviously oil and gas and, you know, VC fuel is uh, transition energy with Amit and, you know, uh, Pickering is sort of, you know, both, yeah. right? So that, and obviously as, gen, you know, my company is a, a transition energy and infra. So it, it gives you a really nice perspective talking to different people. But I also think 
So there, you have to give and you have to get, right? So I'm, I'm yeah. getting a perspective. Um, but the second piece is I think I can I can contribute a lot, right? Because again, having been, you know, being in oil and gas and being, you know, in, in transition energy, for example, there's a lot of things that you can contribute to both sides. Yeah, um, and it, it, it's not on a, you know, obviously confidential basis or anything, but, but you, you generally, your, your brain is, is, is kind of, you are prone to thinking and get different perspectives. I mean, one of my, you know, favorite experiences from a career perspective in life was being at Blackstone. Because when I was at Blackstone, you know, everyone thinks, you know, you're, or, or Harvard, it's very similar, right? Like, you, you're so smart, you know, you know, you know everything. And I said, it's not that I know everything, it's just I have access to anyone I want to have access to. And so, you know, th that perspective, I find that important at any point of my life. You know, in fact, when I was at the Climate Week, I made a point to talk to many different, you know, players like yeah. across different, you know, even different industries, like real estate, right? Yeah. And just hearing where is the world going, give me perspective, because it is impossible to have perspective if you are running a business, right? And I, I, what I like about my board work is that I'm, I'm actively working, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not sort of removed, right? This is, I'm, I'm very actively contributing and building, you know, companies and, and et cetera. So that I think provides a unique perspective to the board, right? right. Because I'm act, you know, I'm very actionable. I'm doing yeah, things. I will start winding this down. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll back it up a little bit. You've been all over the world. Best place you've lived is? You know, I, I do love Houston, Texas. I, I, 11 years ago when I came here, I, I couldn't even believe myself that I would, I would like it here. And I, I'm even considering coming here, honestly, at that point. We really like it here. It was a very deliberate decision to, to live here. I, of course, I'm Czech and I'm very proud Czech. So, you know, your home is going to be your home and that's always a special place. You know, I love mountains. So I, um, I grew up in Switzerland for part of my life. I went to boarding school there and uh, that's probably a place where I, I would love to. My, my only goal monetarily from in life is I, I would like to have a nice chalet in Switzerland where I can go and retire and ski and you know, hike. But, uh, you know, the, the, the beauty, honestly, Fred, I, I can't, Texas and, and the U.S. and Czech Republic always will have a special place. I can't decide between those two, obviously. They're very different. But I was, you know, I'm, I'm very, and I see, by the way, the impact of the fact that I've lived, not, not toured, you know, but I've lived in so many different places. I've lived in Chile, in South America. I lived in Africa, in Egypt. I lived, obviously, in the Middle East. I lived in Switzerland, in the Czech Republic, in many places in the U.S., and, and that, by the way, is something that's incredibly um, beneficial for me now, right? Because I'm dealing with many different people, people from, you know, f guys who work in the field to people who have, you know, who are Rhodes Scholars or have, you know, PhDs from Stanford and MIT and, and who are from China and India and, you know, Brazil and, and Czech Republic and, and, you know, and Houston, Texas. And so I think that getting that depth of understanding different people and different cultures. I remember, you know, going to Chile and, and Egypt actually a similar experience when I said, you know, the first month when I was there, I'm like, these people make no sense. What they do, it doesn't make any sense. And then leaving, you know, six or eight months later and saying, this makes complete sense. I totally get it, yeah. right? I, I know how they think, I know why they think that way. And so that trained my mind in a way that I, I finding, you know, you have depth and you have true ability and willingness to understand, you know, different people and different drivers. And I did it, by the way, I do it from a socioeconomic perspective. Yeah. 
you know, you're interacting. I, you know, I worked for the president back in the day, and you know, you know World Bank president too. To, you know, I, I grew up in a very working class environment, right? So having the ability to actually interact, and that's another thing, actually, Fred, that's very translatable from oil and gas to transition energy. I'm not in some, you know, amazing office, you know, in, in a big skyscraper. I mean, I go, I see the companies, I sit with them, you know, we drive two, three hours from some remote airport to get to these places. And so, you know, that willingness to be able to interact and yeah. see what these companies are doing, I think it's incredibly important. Now, maybe the hardest question that we're going to ask all day, more revered check, Yamir Yager or Martina Navratilova? You know, oh, uh, well. And you had time to think about it. I, I did. I, I, you know, Yager has been always, you know, I'm, I'm a huge hockey fan. My, my dad was an ice hockey player. And actually, now, I, now my son's shockingly in Houston, Texas. Is that the number one hockey. sport in the Czech Republic? Is, is Ice hockey and soccer. Probably okay. both of them. Equally. Right. Equally. <laughs> so, huge hockey fan. I love watching Yager over the past two decades, just incredible, dealing with incredible adversity. You know, he stays one or two hours more at the age of 40 plus and, and trains so he can keep up with the 18 year olds, right? So uh, just incredible, just personality example, honestly, for me. Is he still playing, by the way? He's still playing. I mean, he's playing for a club he owns. So it's, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> hey, look. but he's, you know, he's, he's, I mean, he's, I think he just turned 50. So. But it's just incredible. He, he loved it, you know, and he's still doing it and just incredible, you know, uh, dealing with incredible adversity throughout his life. So I, I, I love that approach. And it's equally the case with uh, Martina, obviously. I mean, she dealt with, you know, many, many, many similar, you know, uh, adversities. I've never met Martina. I have the benefit. I've met Yager. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you meet someone, you're kind of inclined. But but obviously, as a, uh, you know, what she's been through, what I love about both of them and what connects them is just just incredible work ethic and never giving up doing the sport through pain and you know being able to just take incredible amount of of pain throughout that sport career is something that I personally sort of associate myself with so both of them I don't want to call out any of them but you know Martina if you hear me uh, if if we meet in person, maybe I'll change my mind, and you'll be my you know favorite sports person. So we'll say Yamir one A, <laughs> Martina one B. I that, think that's that that's about right. That's okay. fair. All Very right. fair. All right. Then Dominic Hasek is somewhere. Yes. Yes. Further, yes. Further yes. <laughs> Are there any famous Czech basketball or football players that, that you know of? Uh, I mean, so we have a number of soccer players. You mean, you mean American football? Uh, yeah, I still, you know, I'm trying to grasp the rules uh, of, of the games. Years. You know, baseball and American football, unless you grow up, actually, you know, I, I do this post-Sog Little League now, so I'm, you know, I'm starting to grasp, you know, uh, the rules now. But 20, yeah, it's taking me 25 years. It's well, it's crazy. I, again, you, you are up to the gills in, in, in what you're doing in the energy transition space, and you are certainly taking a, uh, uh, you know, no holds barred approach to it. Kind of what do you see uh, S-Gen doing and what's kind of on the horizon? And I'm guessing it is S-Gen for uh, Andreka Bernatova. S-Gen is a SPAC and, uh, you know, we are you know, really diligently, I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm getting a, a very few hours of sleep every day, you know, looking for the right companies to partner with. You know, so, so TBD is a public company, you know, uh, uh, where, uh, you know, I, I can't say much more, to be honest, but uh, so we're excited about the opportunities ahead. Uh, and uh, I can tell you one thing, I'm not in for participation awards. And I can tell you that I have zero doubt in my mind that we 
been working unbelievably diligently over the past year to uh, deliver a value for, for our you know, public and private investors. So I would challenge anyone who thinks that you know, uh, there's somebody else who hustles and um, you know, is, is looking more diligently than we are. I can tell you that. Thank you so much for that, Miss Andreka Bertitova. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and of course, over on the website, thepowerconnect.net. If you listen to us over at Apple Podcasts, and we know that a lot of you do, leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we think we do a good job, and it helps with the algorithm. And of course, if you listen to all the podcasts, or most of it, we would certainly appreciate that too. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up content-wise that you do not want to miss out on. Make sure, again, you check out the InnoWatch webinar. Sign up for that. That's going down Thursday, November 10th, so you definitely don't want to miss that. You can sign up through their LinkedIn page. Connect with us on our LinkedIn page if you haven't already. Fred Davis and or The Power Connect. Uh, do so, do so now. Also, too, we've got a slew of content coming out over the next few weeks. We're finishing 2022 with a bang. You want to be part of this train? Jump on now. But in the meantime, here's what we got coming up. Railroad Commissioner of Texas candidate Jaime Diaz is going to drop by talking about his campaign. John Belazare, CEO of Saluna, he stops through. Absolutely just incredible conversation with what uh, Mr. Belazare is doing. And of course, he's also got a great blog that he talks about CEOs and just great insight from him. Brad Wills from Schneider Electric joining us. Buck Martinez, Neil Dykeman, and Sid Kitts and just to name a few. So we've got a lot going on here. Jump on the train, do it, do it now. Shout out to everybody for continuing to support the podcast here at The Power Connect. Once again, shout out to uh, my team over at Inawat, Sid, Krishnan, the entire gang. Thank you guys so much. And of course, the audience. Without you guys doing what you do, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. Wake up, all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have.